calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with another episode of Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri. Hello, I'm Nicole Otto. Have you ever considered the psychological and emotional implications of the relationship between vampires and their familiars? John Wiswell has, and we have his award-winning meditation on that very topic. But spoiler alert, that isn't really what the story is about. This is part one of That Story Isn't the Story, written by John Wiswell and voiced by Vikas Adam. Everything Anton owns goes in one black trash bag. His ratty yellow sketch pad, which he bought to draw the other familiars when he moved here and only ever used three pages of. The few shirts and khakis that he paid for with his own money before Mr. Bird took control of his finances. A broken pocket watch he'd found dangling from the side of the Queensboro Bridge on the first day he really considered ending himself and had instead rescued the watch with the intent of one day learning how to fix it. Anton never did fix that watch, but it is leaving with him. He heads for the stairs that will lead him out of the townhouse. It'll be the first time he's gone outside in so long it feels like he's never been outside. Time outside the gothic damask flock wallpaper and blacked out windows still doesn't seem real. Where are you going? The voice comes from the rear room, the one next to Mr. Bird's, where the twins sleep. Liquor and jasmine incense waft forth as one of the teenagers emerges. Both Pavla and Joanna look and sound so similar, with their gossamer hair and legs as thin as their arms. This one is Pavla, recognizable because she always wears red arm warmers, because her elbows are where Mr. Bird bites her. He bites Anton in more intimate places. Aren't you supposed to be getting his mayonnaise out of storage? As Pavla asks, she touches the inside of her arm through the arm warmer, as though to protect it from a thought. He's going to flip his shit if you don't have them hanging when he gets back. Anton lies. I'm on my way. 
She rubs her eyes and looks at his garbage bag. What have you got there? Nothing important. The sleepiness drops off her tone, and for a moment her voice is thin and hard, like Mr. Bird's. What are you doing? A car horn blares from the street outside the townhouse. He needs to hurry up. Grigori is outside and probably as scared as Anton is. He has to be out of here before Mr. Bird returns. So Anton hugs his garbage bag and goes for the stairs. The thick oak front door of the townhouse is ajar, letting orange sunlight spill over the coat rack and end tables of their parlor. It leaks up the stairs, and Anton pauses on the last step above it. Instinctively, he checks the windows, with their blackout curtains nailed in place. The rest of the townhouse is dim. Mr. Bird has banished the sun from this place, cloaking it in a peaceful, suffocating dark where Anton and Pavla don't have to think. The sun is intruding because of Anton's doing. Pavla says, don't do it. You'll burn, Anton tells himself. It's not true. It's not true. Not that a fact helps a feeling. Anton urges himself. Mr. Bird goes outside. Walter, the senior familiar, often goes with him. They survive. A bulky white man steps into the light, and Anton's chest seizes. Anton says, Mr. Bird? No, you're early. It isn't him. It's Grigori, tall and chunky in odd directions. He moves like he doesn't care. Grigori has an ugly charisma. His face is splattered with risen moles, acne scars, and asymmetrical dimples. He is comfortable with his face and faded one-piece hoodie and running shoes that he wears to every occasion. I'm double parked, dude. Let's hit the road, Anton says. I'm sorry, you should go home. It was a mistake to call you. Pavla sneaks closer to the stairs, still shy of where the sunlight falls. She demands, who the hell is he? Grigori eyes her. From his tone, he has no idea who he's talking to. I'm a friend of Anton's since high school, and I'm a reason you should step away from him. Anton says, seriously, you need to get out of here before he, before the owner gets home. To quote the Bible? No fucking way, Grigori says, and lumbers inside. He makes the terrible mistake of entering this place. Mr. Bird has probably seen everything. He's probably furious. Seriously, man, Grigori says. I am not going anywhere without you. If I get a ticket, that's on you. He'll be home any minute. And if he comes for you, he comes for me. Let's go. You don't understand. Grigori stretches out one of those lumpy arms with palm extended to touch Anton. It's an offer of touch. Such an unusual thing for touch to be an offer in this house.
Anton forgot it could be an offer. Anton grabs his hand and they run, leaving Pavla swearing upstairs. She doesn't follow them into the light. Their escape is a dented current Kia Rio with a broken front bumper and a trash bag covering one broken side window. Anton goes for that door and tosses his own trash bag of belongings inside. Grigori asks, you still like the electric six? They are not the first words he thought he'd hear upon escaping. The question is so alien, it feels like being struck in the face by a hammer or like an invasive bite. Briefly, Anton wonders if he's bleeding already. That will happen. A black town car trails up the street toward them. Sleek and black, with that short club of a man, Walter, at the wheel. Mr. Bird's senior familiar. Anton knows who sits in the tinted windows and the shadows of the rear seats. From inside the Kia, Grigori pops the passenger door open. Come on, man! Is blood spotting in Anton's jeans? He gropes at his thighs, unsure if the moisture is sweat on his palms or if he's bleeding. The car is getting closer. Mr. Bird definitely sees him. Anton sinks into the car. He clutches his seatbelt until they are doing 40 in a 20-mile zone. He's too worried to turn around and too afraid not to fixate on the rearview mirror. The black car stops in the middle of the street. A rear door opens and a dark thing peers out. There is no seeing any detail of that figure. No detail except for his mouth. It is open and sharp. Distance doesn't change how clearly Anton sees the teeth. They drive to one of the thousand little towns that keeps the city fed. Grigori's place is tucked behind a salt barn, near a depot where the district parks its vehicles and keeps supplies for winter storms. Grigori's place itself looks like the mutant child of a double-wide and a single-story kit house, made from faded white aluminum with a slanted roof, like the building is tipping its hat to them. The colorful light of a TV flickers through the murky windows, which look like they haven't seen a sponge in their entire lives. Grigori says, Welcome to my estate. You'll have the east wing to yourself. Anton hugs his trash bag and follows Grigori. The house is even smaller on the inside. More a living room kitchen combo with a few doors that must lead to cramped spaces. It's a house of unpainted white walls with the occasional brown or greasy scuff. A Hispanic kid sits on a couch cushion on the floor, playing retro video games on the TV. There are four couch cushions and no couch to be seen. The kid twists around on his pillow to face them. He has lopsided ears, the right almost two-thirds bigger than the left, and his black hair is raked to the left. He gestures at Anton with the game controller. Hey, is this the new guy? Grigori says, yup, in the flesh. The kid rolls backward getting his shoulders to the floor, then springs up to his feet with his arms outstretched as though awaiting applause. 
the controller is still in his left hand. Hey, I'm Luis. Suddenly Anton feels too tall. Luis is the same height as him, and Anton still wishes to be smaller. He doesn't deserve to take up as much space as that poise and swagger. He says, I'm Anton. Pleased to meet you. So formal, Luis says. You got any stuff? I can help bring it in. I packed light. That's cool. I didn't have anything when my uncle kicked me out either. So you lived with some fucked up people? Anton remembers feeling the sun on his skin and thinking he'd die on contact. He remembers it so intensely that he might still be standing in the stairs of Mr. Bird's townhouse. Escaping was an illusion. This is all a lie he's telling himself. He says, sort of. What were they like? Did they make you do fucked up shit? Yes, this definitely isn't happening. Anton is somewhere in the townhouse. He's in the archives, finding the right paintings for Mr. Bird. It was stupid of him to think he could get away. He feels the slickness on his thighs, the sign that Mr. Bird is here and mad at him. Grigori steps in. That's not the story we're telling today. Grigori is so close that his hot breath falls on Anton's shoulder, cutting through his shirt. It grounds him in the moment. The crappy little house tucked behind a salt barn is tangible, and so is the meaning of the people inside it. His friend extends an arm like he wants to touch Anton to reassure him, and he does not take the touch. It is another offer of touch. That intent is more reassuring than touch could be. Anton tries to focus on the intent, despite dreading that shadows and teeth are nearby and that his pants are full of blood. Grigori says, Anton's an old friend. His family was there for me when I needed something. My house is going to be here for him, just like it is for you. We don't have much room, so we give each other space of ideas, right? Luis nods ruefully and sets the game controller aside. He says, my bad, sorry. You sure there isn't anything I can carry for you? The bleeding feels real. Anton asks, actually, do you have a bathroom? Anton means to check himself in the bathroom mirror. There is no bathroom mirror. There are three small white shelves holding supplements and amber pill bottles like the inside of a bathroom mirror. The mirror itself has been removed, leaving empty hinges behind. Subconsciously, he listens for Grigori and Luis's footfalls to trail away from the bathroom door, like they might hear his guilt. It's a genuine fear that sticks to his ribs. Pavla and Walter would have mocked him for it. He sits on the toilet and spreads his thighs to check himself. There are many holes in his skin, most like the shapes of melted Tic Tacs. The holes form the circular shapes of three bite marks, two on his right thigh and the newer one on the left. They're not healing. 
The two oldest bites are maybe 11 months old and have never sported a scab. He'd hoped they might close up after he fled. They are not closing. At least they are bloodless tonight. That is all the relief Anton gets. Mr. Bird's bites only bleed when Mr. Bird is near and upset with his familiar. This means Mr. Bird isn't nearby. Not nearby yet. Anton runs a fingertip over the holes in his skin, worrying them. He dreads that they will start bleeding at any moment. He stares so intently that he doesn't know he's panicking until someone knocks on the bathroom door. You okay in there, man? He spends hours apologizing for the noise he makes next. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. He is not up to chatter. The couple times Luis asks him about superhero movies leave him in tears. The raw thought required is too much. Should he pretend to have seen a movie they consider essential? Will liking Captain America more than Batman upset one of his hosts? When he actually does care about something, is he effusive enough to hold up his part of the talk? Grigori drops the yellow sketch pad in Anton's lap along with a few colored pencils. Literally had these left over for ten years. Can you believe it? They waited for you. Gripping them feels familiar and nostalgic. Anton had these pencils in high school. A third of them are merely nubs of pencils. Grigori kept his nubs. They sit on the stray sofa cushions, all arranged around the TV. The guys play Terraria, a video game that seems to be about digging a tunnel to hell so that you can build a house. It's in the retro style of graphics that were old before Anton was born. Luis offers him the controller. You want to play? No, thank you. Grigori says, Anton's a gamer. He used to be a beast at Smash Brothers. Luis says, This game is more chill than Smash. It's a multiplayer game, but they don't own any other devices to play it on. Rather, they take turns with their one controller. Grigori likes to build ladders up to the clouds to face harpies for treasure underground. Luis is more into mining for metals and building traps. Digging one single block in front of a door means no monster can get in. Instead, they fall in and are stuck in the shallow hole. The door of their actual house has no pit in front of it. Anton watches through the window looking in the creeping shadows of dusk. Any of them could be Mr. Bird. Grigori says, how am I supposed to fight the Eye of Cthulhu with all the NPCs living on the top floor? It's another of those sentences that feels like it belongs in another plane of existence from Anton. He scrutinizes the fort they're building in the game. Luis has disco balls and fireplaces in every room. The place has no symmetry and too few ways to get between the chambers. 
It's boxy, with patches of wood and gray stone for walls and ceiling. It's a mess of pixelated good intentions. Anton has the nub of gray and brown pencils. He sketches a sleek revision to the fort, with a ladder up the center of all the floors, like an elevator. It can lead down into all of Luis's tunnels. Everywhere, there will be a torch. Then they'll be safe. He nudges Grigori with the sketch pad and gets a nod of approval. The three of them start redesigning the fort. And a door there, Anton gestures to the wall of the top floor, to throw bombs down when monsters come. Luis drops the controller to put both his hands to his scalp. You mad genius! The quickened pulse, the rapid flight of his eyes between pad and people and game. It's been so long since excitement wasn't coupled with fear. When they slay a giant flying eyeball with fangs, all three of them grab each other and shake wildly. It's terrifying, and Anton doesn't want it to stop. Grigori has four jobs altogether. From 7 a.m. to noon, he's the cook at a gastro diner called Breakfast for Breakfast. Anton thought they'd be eating gourmet pancakes every day, but Grigori can't stand breakfast food. Not after making it this much. I'd rather eat my hand than a waffle. For the rest of his week, Grigori mows the grass around the town hall and the cemetery and separates papers from plastics at the town dump, and almost ironically, he drives a rideshare. Luis has two jobs. He works at the dump as well and bags groceries part-time. These are the things that just barely keep food on their table. Not that they have a table. They eat off old plastic egg crates. He starts to draw again, trying to get the holes in the egg crates right, so eventually he can draw the holes in himself. During this whole time, no question is asked. Grigori lets him coast without a nudge. Anton could hide in the house and draw and play Terraria for weeks. But doing their dishes and laundry and scrubbing the windows is simply not enough. It'll be Luis who asks when Anton is going to pitch in, and when the answers are vague, the resentment will grow. The advice helplines he calls tell him not to rush himself. They do not understand what it is to bleed when you disappoint someone. Calm down, Grigori says. You're making that buzzing sound again. I need to work. If one of you gets hurt, we've got nothing. Well, lucky you, this town's getting gentrified to fuck. How does that help? Where there are rich people, there is work they don't want to do. Manual labor is a gift. Lugging jugs of weed killer and spreading soil is not so different than building pixelated homes in Terraria. They are both distractions. Much as he doesn't think about his own existence when he plays the game, he ceases to exist when he hauls and aches and works. It's a peaceful oblivion that pays bills. There are so many showy second homes, and Grigori knows some of the owners. The nearest properties are an eight-mile walk, which Anton can abide. After a week, he's pulling 14-hour days without a complaint. The homeowner is a white lady, Mrs. Walsh. 
She sips limeade and tequila with a generous smile, the generosity of which is that she is smiling for him at all. He knows the dynamic. He knows to show gratitude. Kids today don't have a work ethic, she says, shooing Anton to the road. You're different. Without thinking about it, Anton knows he doesn't have a work ethic. The helplines have taught him better. He has a habituated trauma that requires him to do something or face consequences he's too afraid to think about. If anything, it's a relief that Mrs. Walsh's kids aren't like him. He is thinking again. He needs to stop that. He says, Thanks, Mrs. Walsh. It's a beautiful property. I'll have the slope finished soon, and then we can start on that garden. The eight-mile walk home will be easier in a week, when Grigori frees up and joins him. They'll drive together. That'll mean more sleep, too. Fifty yards into those eight miles, he recognizes a town car parked along the wrong side of the road. Its black hood has a grainy polish so that it lacks any luster, in moonlight or daylight. Its windows are tinted so deeply that pedestrians couldn't see what was done to passengers inside. His pants are wet. The cloying warmth seeps out of his bites, soaking through the fabric. It brings with it the anticipation that a blow is coming. He cringes in expectation. The other familiars are here. They've been waiting for him. The twins, Pavla and Joanna are on either side of the senior familiar, Walter. They wear sharp satin suits over starched linen shirts. They wear the kind of uncomfortable, thick rings that left indentations on Anton's fingers to this day. Pavla says, Get in the car and come back with us, and I'll try to smooth it over with... Walter raises a hand with one finger, and Pavla stops talking. Her eyes go from his finger to the car to her shoes. A little stream of blood trickles down her left cuff and across the heel of her hand. That means her bites are bleeding, too. She and her sister have to leave Mr. Bird, too. Anton should argue with her and convince her that leaving is possible. Not that she'd dare listen to him now. Walter is a gangly man, barely out of his teens, younger than Anton, and broader. His limbs are thin enough that it's easy to miss how wide his shoulders are and how long his reach is. His teeth have started to sharpen, although his are nothing close to Mr. Bird's. He has been Mr. Bird's familiar the longest. Mr. Bird is frequently unhappy with him. He'd wanted Anton to take over, allegedly since Anton was more decisive. The idea of becoming Mr. Bird's right hand is what finally made Anton run. It's something he's worked hard not to think about. Walter says, You took something of his. Anton shifts on the side of the road. The crumbling asphalt tilts under his footing. I didn't. I swear. Walter points at Anton's chest. You, your time is his time. You made the same deal we all did. Anton pushes the soles of his feet against the asphalt, 
letting it break. You can't make me come back. You are going to make yourself come back, Walter says with the edge that Mr. Bird usually speaks in. It's for your own good. None of us could live without him. I'm alive. I'm fine. You're shaking. You were shaking the day he and I found you too. Is he shaking? He clutches his right arm. Yes, he is. Was he shaking before Walter said he was? He's not sure. Walter says, he's not doing this to hurt you. You were nothing before. We were all nothing. Are we not good enough for you? Where's your loyalty? That word. Loyalty. It makes him think of Grigori's ugly face and the one time he and Anton went on a date and how bad it went and how they were still friends the next week and how years later Grigori came and double parked to save him. Walter asks, What made you think you could survive without him? That story is not the story I'm telling today. The blood flowing on his thighs slows, as though it's clotting. It's still forming dark circles in his pants that are visible in the waning daylight. He refuses to relent. He thinks of his new home and the sketch pad and game night waiting for him. The linoleum floor of Grigori's place is more welcoming than Mr. Bird's memory foam bed. If his brain is going to lock up, it is going to lock on those feelings. Walter says, If you don't come with us, there will be consequences. We know where you're nesting now. The mental image of that linoleum floor now floods Anton with cold dread. What could be happening in their home right now? Is that house on fire? Is Mr. Bird waiting in the town car? Or is he across town ravaging Gregory and Luis? Is there any life left eight miles away? No. His bites are bleeding. That means Mr. Bird must be here, not there. A speck of red wells in the white linen of Walter's shirt. It peeks out behind beneath his suit jacket. Anton often wondered where Mr. Bird bit Walter. Now he knows. This means Mr. Bird is furious at them all. He must still want to replace Walter. Pavla and Joanna move to the rear door of the car. They open it and stand, waiting for Anton to submit. To come to the place no one should call home. Anton says, I have work in the morning. Pavla and Joanna watch him leave, walking to a different home. There is no sleeping tonight. Anton lies on the floor and pretends to rest while he watches the window. There are noises in the night, deeper animal sounds than any raccoons. There's a warbling buzz, 
like a flock of nocturnal crows are clearing their throats. He doesn't dare go outside. Not in all that dark. They could be anywhere out there. First thing at sunup, he inspects the front door in case any carnage or omens have been left there. There's nothing there except garbage and the pair of beat-up lawnmowers they need to tear open and fix. This doesn't make sense. Anton pulls weeds the next day. His neck feels made of fraying rope from all the times he checks behind himself. As best as he can tell, the car and the familiars don't show up. Monday morning is the same, if harder to get through because of the brain fog. Anton needs to sleep or he'll never survive this life. He cuts the shit out of his hands working, and that is a sign that he needs to focus on what really matters. Everything will be fine. It's not until Tuesday that they come for Luis. Oh, what a place to pause. But don't worry, we'll have part two in our next episode. In the meantime, please show your love for the great writers we feature by dropping a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 85, features That Story Isn't the Story, Part 1, by John Wiswell. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Osadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Vikas Adam. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.